0: There was tweets going around saying that 39 children were found in a trailer park or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. It was almost like the telephone game. You know, Why is this not the biggest story in America? Well, the truth was it was a big story in America. It was certainly a big story in in Georgia and, and it spread all over the world.
1: This is Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. It's Friday, October 23rd, 2020. In August of this year, federal and state law enforcement made a startling announcement. A series of raids across Metro Atlanta and beyond resulted in, quote, the rescue of 26 children, unquote, plus the safe location of 13 others. In announcing a series of arrests that sprung from the raids, officials stressed that many of the children were in danger of becoming victims of sex trafficking. Today, Johnny Edwards, an investigative reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, on what he learned from doing a deep dive into the specific cases and how news of Operation Not Forgotten perpetuated a narrative of sex trafficking that doesn't always square with the evidence. Johnny, can you tell us exactly what Operation Not Forgotten was?
0: Primarily, Operation Not Forgotten was a press release and a press conference. It was a press conference attended by VIPs and dignitaries, including uh, US Marshal Service Director Donald Washington.
1: All right, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Thank you for coming today. This is Operation
0: Not Forgotten and uh, Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr. We're so proud of the work that we are doing with our partners like the U.S. Marshal Service, the GBI, and those that are standing up on the podium today. It created uh, an appearance that, uh, that, that sex traffickers had been stopped and sex trafficking victims had been rescued across the state and in other states. Operation Not Forgotten was designed to locate and recover missing and endangered children in Georgia and beyond including some who were known to be victims of sex trafficking. We
1: recovered 26 missing and endangered children, and we safely located an additional 13, uh, and we arrested nine criminals that are involved or were involved uh, with, with these missing children.
0: When you hear the word operation in the, in the law enforcement context, typically you think of a, of a sting or, or an effort to, to bust one group of bad guys like one... Uh, criminal gang or one drug trafficking operation, but this was an operation in a very loose sense. I mean, it was dozens of different cases of missing children, endangered children, and criminal suspects that were cobbled together and packaged and wrapped up and, and made to appear like one operation.
1: So it was called an operation, but it was a series of discrete and disconnected law enforcement efforts targeting different people who, who didn't know each other.
0: Correct. It was, it was a lot of different cases that ordinarily would not make headlines, would not make the news, would not be on any reporter's radar, and most of them. Some of them were. They had uh, embedded news crews with them on some of them, um, but most of them were not. But by being packaged together and announced in this way with this kind of loaded language like sex trafficking, child exploitation... Uh, It it made big headlines, it made headlines all around the world.
1: We begin with an
0: incredible story out of Georgia.
1: Well, this afternoon, developing at five, more than two dozen children are now safe. They were all part of a sex trafficking bust involving state and federal agents. This was a two-week operation that netted a handful of arrests.
0: The chief of the missing child unit saying, quote, when we track down fugitives, it's a good feeling to know that we're putting the bad guy behind bars. But that sense of accomplishment is nothing compared to finding a missing child.
1: Let's first just talk a little bit more about the operation and and sort of how it was presented. What were they telling us on that day at that press conference?
0: Well, it's interesting what they told us. You know, if you read the press release, it's, it's technically accurate. It's just the words they use. It's the things they highlight. And I would assume they know how most reporters, particularly reporters working on deadline, operate. You know, they're going to zero in on, on the most alarming or notable words that are used. So they use words like child exploitation, sex trafficking. You know, some of these do appear to be legitimate sex trafficking cases. There was one out of Columbus like that where, it, you know, it sounds like a really awful case. So it two teenage girls being being pimped and exploited by uh, three and eventually four men who were arrested it took off like wildfire on social media and, and evolved into an entirely different narrative we talked to a professor at Emory who to trace the evolution of this in social media and in news coverage and it, and it goes from being you know, possibly sex traffic to a sex trafficking operation to a sex trafficking enterprise until by the time it gets in the hands of the QAnon set it's uh it, it, it's it's Basically, part of the whole PizzaGate operation, and it's it's you know completely out of control, and in it's inaccurate descriptions. There was tweets going around saying that 39 children were found in a trailer park, or something to that effect, mm-hmm. and it just that was just the way it was. Almost like the telephone game. It had turned into being one operation or one location. That goes to sort of this narrative that the media lies, this fake news narrative that it was, you know, why is this not the biggest story in America? Well, the truth was it was a big story in America. It was certainly a big story in in Georgia, and and it spread all over the world.
1: What prompted you to look into this? Because the AJC, where you work, had a story um, after the, the press conference that was pretty straightforward about this is what Yeah, the authorities said happened, these were the arrests that were made, Uh, and it seemed like, okay, that's, uh, the agency's done the story. What made you decide to look into it more deeply?
0: Well, there was a lot about that story in that press conference that just didn't add up. You know, a lot of people that heard it and read it and moved on still kind of thought, you know, there's something about that. That just seems odd. And then there was a story in the Huffington Post, sort of a deep dive on the statistics and what a lot of these kids who were recovered, what their situations really were, and uh, that got our attention. So, uh, my co-writer, Jennifer Peebles, started pulling public records, pulling police records to look into those nine arrests. Mm-hmm. And then I, I joined her in that effort. And as we started to to look at the, the different criminal cases, you know, at first it just appeared these don't have anything to do with each other. For the longest time, we were just like scratching our heads like, did they just take a bunch of different cases that have the sort of of sex trafficking and put them all together. From what we could tell, what the marshals told us, it was tied to this list of 78 names that were given to the U.S. Marshals by uh, G- the GBI back in back in January. But even that was still sort of loose because, you know, one case ended up being put into the mix that where the, the, the child victims weren't even on that list of 78 names. Regardless, I mean, what they did was they took a lot of different cases that otherwise would not make the news, and they you know put them all together and put them in this press release with words like child exploitation and child sex trafficking, and uh, makes it makes it into a, a big a big uh, national news story. A massive planning operation behind the scenes was carried out over the course of two weeks in the Atlanta and Macon areas earlier this month. CBS 46 was granted access as the marshals and several partner agencies worked to track down critically missing children.
1: You mentioned that there were some news crews embedded uh, on some of the raids. How typical is that for news media to be invited along on criminal uh, law enforcement operations?
0: From my experience, it's not typical, but uh, it can be typical when it's something that law enforcement wants to highlight. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in this case, they, they very much wanted to show officers wearing body armor, going into houses, pulling out children in, in distress, uh, one of them being the 17-year-old who was found at the Sharif's house. And you know, in, in the case of uh, Trevante Sharif and Kirk Waters, that certainly was what the, what the picture showed. On this day, Kirby and her team found a 17-year-old girl who ran away from foster care. She was with a convicted felon who had a gun. They removed her from a potentially dangerous situation.
1: Social media and the messaging from authorities themselves portrayed a simple narrative of sex trafficking in Georgia, but reporting by Johnny Edwards and his colleague Jennifer Peebles at the AJC revealed some complicated truths. That's ahead. This is Georgia Today. This is Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. I'm talking with Johnny Edwards, an investigative reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Johnny, in your reporting, you met Travante Sharif. Who is he?
0: He's a 21-year-old uh, young man. He works for Federal Express. I think he's an aspiring musician. He seems to have some sort of a, a rap thing going um, he lives with his mother in Cummington. Okay, and he had a girlfriend that he met. He says that he met her through a mutual friend, uh, a, another young lady that he knew, and uh, this young lady that became his girlfriend lived with her, and he said he had picked her up there at the house before. He said uh, they'd been going together about seven months. He um, And she's how old? She's 17. Okay. So... Th- both Trevante and his mother, Eugenia, had asked her a few times about her family, and she would say, my family lives far away. They live down in South Georgia. I grew up in foster care. They, they knew she'd been in foster care at some point in her past. According to them, they did not know that she was still in the foster care system and was, in fact, wanted by authorities.
1: Wanted by authorities for, for what
0: exactly? Being a runaway. Okay. So both Travante and Eugenia told us repeatedly and adamantly that they did not know that Travante's girlfriend was a runaway or that she was much less wanted by police. They was like, well, she's 14, she's yeah, 15, she's 16. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, which one is it? Mm-hmm. How old is the girl? I don't yeah. know, you know what yeah. I'm saying? I'm, yeah. I don't know anything about this. So yeah. they like, well, it doesn't matter. She's underage and she's a runaway. I didn't know anything about that.
1: So Travante is there, his has Seventeen-year-old girlfriend is there. Trevante's mother is there. It's her house, and also her fiance is there. Is that right? Correct. And then, so what happens?
0: Well, piecing together the various accounts, it sounds like the marshals and the other uh, officers that are part of the operation were doing surveillance for some amount of time. Um, Trevante said he told me he was taking a nap and saw officers running around in his yard out the out of uh, the window, and uh, they came to the door. He says that he objected. He said, do you have a warrant? This is my mother's house and a warrant for his charges. It says that they asked him if uh, the young lady was home and he said, I, I think she left. She might have gone out the back door. Um, they apparently pushed their way past him. I and mean, that's the best thing I can figure out because he says he didn't ever give them consent to come in. So with their guns drawn, federal agents and police officers searched Eugenia Sharif's house for the 17-year-old. Uh, Eugenia told my co-writer, Jennifer Peebles, that she was questioned by the police about where the girl was. Yeah, because they was making it like I was lying and telling them I didn't know where she was. I didn't. I'm in the room sleeping. I -hmm. don't know where she's at. You know what I'm saying? If she ran and hid, you guys are searching the house. My house is not that big. Yeah. You know, so you're searching the house. So if you can't find her, maybe she ran out of the back door. I don't know where she went, Yeah. They found the 17-year-old in the garage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Trevante said, or told me, you know, I, I, I really thought she had run out because, I mean, apparently she bolted when she saw the authorities there. Um, so he was charged with obstructing an arrest, uh, presumably because he told them she had, she had left the house.
1: Okay. And so when authorities held the press conference and issued a press release about the operation and the number of people who were arrested, Trevante's name was among them?
0: Travante's name and his mother's fiancée, Kirk Waters, his name as well.
1: One Kirk Waters, as an example, he was arrested for being in the company, while in the company of one of our recovered children. He was charged with possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. He's incarcerated. His bond has
0: been denied. According to a warrant, they asked him if there was any firearms in the house, and he said yes, there's one upstairs uh, under the dresser, I believe he said, and they went upstairs and found it, and... He uh, is a convicted felon, um, something in his past. But then they came back about a week later and arrested him then.
1: Okay, so none of the charges surrounding them have anything to do with child sex trafficking or trafficking of any kind, right, in terms of Trevante and Kirkwaters?
0: No, they are not charged with anything remotely involving sexual crimes or sex trafficking. Okay. In the
1: days and and weeks after this operation was made public— what was the impact on the lives of Trevante?
0: Well, right. Trevante's and, and Kirk Waters' mugshots ended up on several stories that I saw around around the world and on the web. Their their mugshots were at the top of the story, like the banner photos. And, you know, they the, the Sharifs told me they had family from out of state calling them up, you know, what's going on here? And they had, you know, both acquaintances and strangers from the neighborhood pulling up into the yard. And... You know, demanding that Trevante come outside and fight or, or, or face these accusations, Trevante said one guy that was an acquaintance of his said, "You know, I had you around my sister." How many people were asking me like if I was really doing that? Like they was telling me I was uh, a molester. I did something with a three-year-old. They was like, "How could you do that?" Like, you know, what I'm saying it painted yeah. a real bad picture on my on me for real. Like, yeah, we, we. It just it was just traumatizing. So it was, you know, they, they dealt with stuff like that, just being sort of uh, harassed, threatened, um, you know, all because of you know, someone living in their house who they just apparently didn't know very well.
1: So you'd mentioned that there were a couple of TV news crews that accompanied the um, law enforcement officers when they went about some of these raids. What did their coverage in those, you know, hours and days after those raids look like?
0: Well, if you, if you if you look at it, it's exactly I think what the what the marshals and the federal authorities wanted to put out there that the police are rescuing these children, these children are at, at risk, and and there was a common thread in a lot of the different stories of a of them locating a child and the child saying. I thought you were here to arrest someone else, and the, the marshals say, no, we're here for you, and the child, you know, it becomes all emotional, I didn't know anyone was looking for me. I mean, in at least two different cases, there was that sim- similar account, mm-hmm. uh, one of them being the 17-year-old who was found at the at the Sharif's house. Now if you, if you look at what she posted on Instagram later, it's a totally different account. She, she says she was uh, roughed up and left with bruises and cuts and... By the um, authorities. Exactly and that uh, she, she stated that Trevante and Kirk were not sex trafficking her. They were, you know, she was living there because she was uh, on the run, she said. And uh, I don't know what's become of her, but in one of those Instagram posts, she wrote, now I'm homeless. So, and then that would lead you to believe she's back out in the, on the street somewhere now.
1: Supporting your story, did you speak about sort of the the potential for misleading the public with authorities who were involved
0: with this? I did. I actually spoke to the the, the public affairs specialist with the U.S. Marshals who wrote the, the press release that went with Operation Not Forgotten, and uh, he he defended his work and at the same time he did concede that some of the language in there might have contributed to this to this uh, this telephone game that happened. Um, but, uh, he, you know, he said what, what was written in there was technically accurate. This is what these children are at risk for. Um, and I'll say this. I mean, to the U.S. Marshals' credit, uh, when, when reporters have gone back and tried to, to fact check and, and uh, verify and, and, and contextualize this, they have been cooperative. They have spoken to the reporters and tried to, to do this. I, I, it's hard to say what they were, you know, if they kind of realized on the back end what, what this created. Or if that was their intention to begin with you know i i, I just i don't know i can't look inside their their heads yeah. but it's uh what what they created on the front end certainly you know the sharifs would would tell you that this did a lot of damage
1: i'm just looking at the, the story that ran in the ajc right after the press conference where It says, in Metro Atlanta alone, authorities estimate 300 young girls are lured into sex trafficking each month, which, uh, that's an astounding figure. But then, you know, I'm also looking at the word estimate. Where do these figures come from?
0: Well, every time we try to look into those figures and and verify them, they turn out to be grossly exaggerated. Um, I don't know where that particular figure came from, but in the past, we've looked at figures for sex trafficking associated with the Super Bowl, and they turned out to be exaggerated. Uh, we looked into figures back in uh, you know a decade ago that were used by Atlanta to apply for a $450,000 grant, and found uh, well, the U.S. Justice Department's auditors found that where they had stated there were hundreds of victims, they they could only locate four. Um, so this this has been going on for for quite a while, and I think it has to do with Atlanta being a transportation hub. It always yep. has been since it stays as terminus and uh, also all the strip clubs, the conventions that come here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back during the Shirley Franklin administration, there would be signs going up in in bathrooms around conventions, you know, if you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. And it, it perpetuated this idea that that Atlanta has a serious sex trafficking problem. Well, I mean, in one case, we looked at their estimate for how many uh, Asian women were in sex trafficking in Atlanta, and it, it turned out that if you looked into that figure, it would mean that one in every eighth Asian women were victims of sex trafficking. It just, it just defied logic.
1: Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm curious about sort of the methodology because authorities, of course, will say, accurately, that this is a crime that occurs in the shadows. You can't go out and just, you know, count them. So you need to do some extrapolating, I guess, based upon known cases. And so I, I guess my question for you is, to what degree is it in the interest of authorities to kind of perpetuate this notion because there's a lot of funding attached to it.
0: Well, I think you answered your own question. There's a lot of funding attached to it. That's that's the motivation. That was certainly the motivation back in the in the 2000s. And it's still the motivation now. I mean, you heard uh, William Barr and Ivanka Trump come here and and announce the the uh, huge amount of money going into this. With over a hundred million dollars being announced today in new grants. It's the administration's largest ever investment in Department of Justice grants to combat the scourge of of human trafficking, arguably the gravest of human rights violations. And and, and also, it's just it's something that it's a clear black and white issue. Sure. How do you argue against uh, fighting human trafficking? Right. Without appearing to be just, you know, almost as bad as them yourself.
1: How do big stings like this or operations when they're announced, how do they impact efforts that are already afoot to combat real sex trafficking, like like real cases of it?
0: One of the people I interviewed for this story was the executive director of Freedom Network USA, Jean Bruggeman, and um, she works with survivors of sex trafficking, and she was very frustrated about things like this. She said it actually hinders her efforts. And, oh. Well... She said that she finds it sort of disingenuous that the that the Trump administration would be announcing all of these these efforts to combat sex trafficking when, in reality, their policies have made it more difficult for sex trafficking victims to come forward, such as maligning immigrants, maligning uh, people who cross the border. I mean, that's that's a lot of the people that end up in this situation through mm-hmm. poverty and desperation, and uh, or people of color. You know, with these you know rioters and looters need to be stopped rhetoric. Um, that it's made people like that afraid to come forward to law enforcement. And I asked her at one point, you know, what does sex trafficking really look like, and what does it really look like in the in the South and in America? And she said what it really looks like is people who are pushed into positions of vulnerability by policies that leave people unprotected and unsupported. Um, she said primarily it's poor people, it's LGBTQI kids who are running away from home, it's immigrants who don't have access to legal status, and so employers are able to abuse and exploit them, um, she said, "That's what it is. It's people who are desperate for housing, desperate for medical care, who will take on any job or try anything to be able to feed their families. In, in her opinion, in the, the way to combat this problem is to is to is to create lifelines for people like that. The heavy hand of law enforcement, you know, while important, is not the the is not the biggest tool in the toolbox."
1: Right. Regarding the Sharif's, are, are they still hearing from from neighbors, from strangers? Are they still having people show up on their doorstep?
0: I don't think it's happened for a few weeks. I um, mean, their their big problem now is they just their their legal predicament. From speaking to them, I don't think these folks have a lot of money. Um, they're dealing with court-appointed attorneys. You know, Kirk is still in jail. He's got some kind of hold on him out of Chicago, according to Eugenia, and uh, she can't figure out how to get him bond. You know, Trevante's you know going to have these criminal charges on his record not to mention anyone who who googles his name is going to see headlines like 39 children rescued from sex trafficking ring so you know they're they're in a world of hurt you know yeah. I've been able to tell their story for the newspaper and shed light on what happened but I was speaking to Eugenia and I just you know she was uh, just just telling me how they're just still really <laughs> swimming in a lot of problems right now and and they don't know what to do
1: Our thanks to Johnny Edwards, an investigative reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. As of now, Travante Sharif still works at FedEx, and Kirk Waters remains in jail. I'm Steve Fennessy. This is Georgia Today, a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. You can subscribe to our show at gpb.org slash or anywhere you get podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Have a story idea? Connect with us at today at gpb.org. Our producers are Sean Powers and Priya Mahadevan. Our intern is Eva Rothenberg. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.